Hello, it's Technology Corner for the week of December 10th, 2006. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and, of course, the commercials. I start this week with an apology. You may not have received a Technology Corner email this week. If so, I'm sorry. I did send it out about 10 Saturday morning by late afternoon when it had not arrived at my test account. I sent a message to Topica for information. So far that has gone without a response. This is being recorded on Saturday evening. I sent a second copy of the message late Saturday afternoon. As of now, it has not been delivered either. I'm still looking for a good, reasonably priced email distribution system, one that is easy for subscribers to use. I have a couple of leads, and I hope to be able to provide a better system in 2007. So hang in there. Recently, I received a question that indicated that the listener had too many background programs running on Windows XP on a Dell laptop. He said it was slowing down performance of his computer for a music program that he needs in his music class. When he checked, he noticed that there were more than 50 programs running in the background. He said, I feel like I have a lasso around my neck and I'm on a short plank. Please advise. That's a good question, and it's a source of puzzlement for a lot of people. If you look at the the programs and the services and the processes that are running when Windows XP is running, you're going to find a huge list. A lot of those do need to be running. Many of them don't need to be running. The trouble is trying to figure out which is which. Fortunately, there are some programs that will help provide some guidance, and I'll give you some information on a couple of them. One is free. It's called Starter, and it's from Code Stuff. And then there's one that is not exactly free, the Ultimate Troubleshooter. It's from Answers That Work. I've talked about the Ultimate Troubleshooter before. think it is a marvelous program, maybe overkill for a situation such as this. But let's take a look at the background of the problem. Sometimes it's hard to tell the good stuff from the bad stuff using just the Windows Task Manager. For example, when I used the Windows Task Manager to take a look at what was running on my computer, I found 81 processes currently running. And you'll find a screenshot of that on the Technology Corner website, www.techbiter.com. Some of the applications are clearly running because I want them to be running. For example, auto-reply, that's an auto-responder I use. There are a bunch of AVG applications. Those are all part of my antivirus protection. There's the ZL Client. That's the Zone Alarm Firewall currently running. Well, I want that to be running. Some of the perhaps less obvious processes, there are several that begin with G2. Those are all go to my PC. I want that to be running. There are some that look like random letters almost, there's D, F, R, A, G, N, T, F, S. Okay, now if you, it looks like random letters, but if you figure that out, it's D, frag, N, T, F, S. Well, that's Disk Keeper. I want that to be running. And there are a couple of instances of MySQL dash N, T. That's a MySQL server. I want that to be running. But you see applications such as K, H, A, L, M, N, P, R, or U, D, S, E, R, V, E, or R, E, T, R, O, R, U, N. So, Comper, UD Serve, and Retro Run. 
for whatever reason, some genius at Logitech decided to name one of the processes that their mouse uses Kalman Purr. They couldn't have picked something like L-Mouse or Logitech. That would have been too obvious. Okay, well, the next one is UDServe. That's the undelete server. I want that to be running. The third is RetroRun. That's part of the Dance Retrospect backup application. That's running. I really don't need it to be running. I don't use that application anymore. To learn what a lot of the standard processes are for, you can visit a process library website. And I have a link to that from the Technology Corner website. Before going any further, it is important, in fact, it's imperative that I say to you there is a critical point to keep in mind. It's much better to make a mistake on the side of safety if you are not absolutely certain that shutting down a service or killing a process will have no detrimental effect on the computer, then leave it alone. Check with somebody who does know. Shutting down some processes will cause the computer to crash, and if you shut it down in the wrong way, it could keep the computer from booting. If you do that, recovery might be as simple and easy as using the last known good configuration or booting from the Windows CD to gain access to the recovery console. That's a little more complicated. Or you might have to reinstall the entire operating system. So making changes on a whim, bad idea. Windows has many ways to start programs. They can be in an individual user's startup folder, so that when you log on, an application starts up for you. When someone else who uses your computer logs on, that particular application doesn't start up for that user. There's also an all-users startup folder, so no matter who's using the computer, the application will start. Then there's the default users startup folder, Other places that programs can be started from are the current users run or run once section of the registry, the all users run or run once section of the registry, the default users run or run once section of the registry, or even in the win any file, which has been deprecated, but XP can still process it on startup. So there are a lot of places you'd have to look. Now, what's the difference between run and run once? At the risk of explaining the obvious, if there's something in the run section of the registry, it's going to run every time the computer is started. If there is something in the run once section of the registry, it's going to run the next time you reboot the system, and then the entry is going to be removed. So it runs just once. Typically, that happens when you install a program that needs to make one additional change during the boot process. If you have a corporate IT department, your system administrator may have set some specific security policies that run applications on startup and effectively make it impossible for you to make any changes. Nothing here should be used in a corporate environment without checking with the system administrator and getting explicit permission. So moving on to the two programs I want to talk about, there's Starter. It can show all of the startup applications regardless of how they are started. Those applications that it shows with a green check mark are running. You can right-click any entry, and that will allow you to see additional information about the application or to disable it. You can also delete it. Choosing disable is always faster, easier, and safer. If you simply disable something, it's still there. If you decide later you shouldn't have disabled it, all you have to do is re-enable it. If you delete it, and you decide later you need it, you're in trouble. 
There are also tabs on Starter that show all of the current processes, and you can right-click a process to terminate it. A third tab shows services, and that's probably the area you want to stay out of. Many services have dependencies on other services. Turning off a service you think you don't need can affect a service you do need. Starter is a good little application. It does what it says it's going to do. Fairly basic, but reliable. The other application, the one that I've talked about previously, is called the Ultimate Troubleshooter. It's from a company called Answers That Work. And a caution here, if you decide to look at one of these programs, look at one or the other. Don't install both of them. If you have two applications trying to control what's starting, you're going to have trouble. So if you're going to look at them, install one, take a look at it, then uninstall it, and install the other one, and take a look at it. The Ultimate Troubleshooter offers a lot more information about the computer than Starter does, and the author of the program has some very strong opinions about applications that install startup functions without first asking the user. He feels that that is, at the very least, rude, and that these startup applications often cause trouble. As with Starter, it shows programs applications, and services. Unlike Starter, the Ultimate Troubleshooter often gives you specific recommendations. It's also updated frequently, and if there are applications it doesn't know about, there is a way for the user to submit information about those applications to the folks at Answers That Work, and they will incorporate those changes once they check them out in later editions. If you have plenty of money and don't mind spending it on a very good application, I would have to recommend the Answers That Work website for the Ultimate Troubleshooter. If you just need a basic application to know what is starting when your computer starts up, the Code Stuff Starter will do a marvelous job. Suddenly, we are awash in browsers. Within the past few weeks, Mozilla, Netscape, and Microsoft have all released new versions of their browsers. Internet Explorer continues to lead the market share, but others, as well as browsers such as Flock, Opera, Safari on the Mac, and Camino on the Mac, are also worth looking at. My primary browser continues to be Mozilla Firefox. It's the browser that I start every time I start the computer, whether it's a Windows computer or a Mac computer, whether I'm at home or at the office. Netscape is occasionally a better choice, and some short-sighted website designers still create sites that will work only with Internet Explorer. So I, of course, keep all of those browsers handy and updated. All three of the new browsers have features that I like. If you're still using Firefox version 1.0 or 1.5, or Netscape version 7-point-anything, or any 6 point anything version of Internet Explorer or anything earlier, now would be a very good time to upgrade. In some cases, your choices are going to be limited. Firefox is the only browser that's available for all of the major operating systems, Windows, Mac, and Linux. Also, for most variants of any of those operating systems, Mac users cannot run the latest version of Netscape. Why? I don't know. And neither Mac users nor Windows users who don't have the latest version of the operating system can run Internet Explorer. latest version of the operating system is Windows XP. It is not intended for any earlier versions. Simply put, all of the browsers seem to work pretty well. They do what they're supposed to do in most cases. What I have for you today is not exactly an exhaustive review of the browsers, just kind of an overall summary and perhaps a look at some of the features that I found interesting, either positively or negatively. 
Mozilla Firefox 2, as I said, my favorite browser. The one I use by default. It's the one I'm most familiar with. Netscape Navigator 8. They have done a very good job this time of taking the open source Mozilla project and extending it. Internet Explorer 7. Microsoft is finally providing a tabbed browser. They're definitely late to the party, but they have a good product, even though it's several years behind everybody else. And it is still, of course, the target that all the bad guys are aiming at. What are some of the neat features in the browsers? Well, in Firefox, large assortment of add-ons. They used to be called extensions. There are more than a thousand add-ons that enhance Firefox so that the browser actually does exactly what you want. Some of the add-ons are shared by Netscape. Internet Explorer has a much smaller choice of extensions, some of which, most of which, require payment. Firefox includes phishing protection. When you attempt to load a website that is a suspected forgery, Firefox will warn you and offer to take you to a search page so you can find the real website you were looking for. Firefox also has an update system that finally works. Firefox update system always checks its startup to see if you're running the latest version of the browser and the latest version of all your add-ons. This may seem to be a bit annoying at times, but it's a feature that keeps the browser and all your add-ons up to date. There's also a spyware block. Firefox tries to keep rogue websites from downloading, installing, or running programs without your explicit agreement. Hopping over to Netscape, well, you can quickly view the status of security protection. Netscape alerts users to certain problems automatically. The browser also attempts to let users know when something is wrong and what action to take. There is a security center that pops up automatically once a day. It has real-time spyware scanning that examines downloaded files, and users can run a complete memory and disk scan. I have found these, however, not to be very accurate. Netscape offers anti-phishing. It depends on a blacklist of suspected harmful sites, so it's always going to be a little bit behind the curve. Anything that uses a blacklist and all of them do, by the way, is going to be somewhat behind the curve. Something can pop up and be out there for a day or two before it ends up on a blacklist. Netscape offers a feature called Multiple Toolbars. This is a feature that condenses toolbars into single buttons, and it reduces page clutter. Users can add up to ten different toolbars to the browser without having to stack them up. Internet Explorer, well, it's still the only browser that will run ActiveX, but it now at least disables most pre-installed ActiveX controls to prevent potentially vulnerable controls from being exposed to attack. Users may enable or disable the controls through the information bar and the add-on manager. ActiveX continues to be a security problem, even though it is needed for some websites. A security bar displays a color-coded notification that indicates whether a site owner has completed identity verification checks. You should note, though, that passing validation means only that the site owner had enough money to pay for a site certificate. It says nothing about the site's actual security. Microsoft finally adds anti-phishing filters that warn against potential or known fraudulent sites. There is an opt-in filter that is updated several times per hour using the latest security information from Microsoft and several other industry partners. And Microsoft continues trying to improve security, this time by adding cross-domain barriers that limit scripts on one website from interacting with content in other websites and other domains. That has been the source of many nasty security problems. One thing I didn't like particularly about the newest version of Internet Explorer is they have eliminated the menus. You now have what are essentially mystery meat icons. 
you know, when you go to the school cafeteria and there's something you can tell it's probably some sort of meat, but you don't know exactly what. Well, with Internet Explorer, you you have icons, and you know they must do something, but maybe you're not exactly sure what, because there are no words with them. That does save space on the screen, but the irony of that is when that was needed five years ago, when people were still using small screens, it wasn't available. Now that most people are using high-resolution screens that are large, the feature is there. On the Technology Corner website, www.techbiter.com, You'll find five screenshots of each of the three browsers with comments about some of the things that I liked or, in some cases, didn't like. In nerdly news, Hewlett-Packard hands the state of California $14.5 million, tells them to bug off. HP says it'll pay that $14.5 million to settle a lawsuit by the California Attorney General regarding pretexting, also, as I've mentioned in the past, known as lying, to obtain private phone records of board members and journalists, a little more than Half a million is the is a fine. More than $13 million will be used to create a privacy and piracy fund that will be administered by the state of California. It will finance investigations of consumer privacy violations and intellectual property theft. About a quarter of a million dollars will actually cover the state's expenses in its investigation of the case. The state will not pursue any additional civil claims against the company or its current or former directors or its officers or its employees. So maybe HP got off light. However, criminal charges are still pending against five people, including Patricia Dunn, the former chair of the company, and the former corporate lawyer. They are accused of violating state privacy laws. All have entered not guilty pleas. HP seems to have left Dunn and company twisting, twisting in the wind. Those criminal cases contend that HP passed information to private investigators who then passed the information on to other private investigators who then used pretexting, also known as lying, to obtain the private phone records of several board members and journalists. Settling the suit ends HP's exposure on the state level, but the company is still being investigated by the Justice Department, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and the Federal Communications Commission. Meanwhile, Hewlett and Packard continue rotating, about 78 RPM, in their graves. There's a new keyboard out. The keyboard on your desktop is probably a QWERTY keyboard, Q-W-E-R-T-Y. So-called because those are the letters that the left hand types at the top of the keyboard. It has been the standard for more than 100 years. You might wonder if it still makes sense. A few people have tried the Dvorak keyboard. I have tried it a couple of times. Can't retrain my fingers to work the way it's supposed to work. But now John Parkinson says he has a better keyboard. It's in alphabetical order. Across the top, A, B, C, D. Next row down on the left hand, E, F, G, H. Next row down on the left hand, I, J, K, L, M. Over on the right hand, top row, N, O, P, Q. Next row, R, S, T, U. And the final row at the bottom for the right hand, V, W, X, Y, Z. Uh, yeah. Will this work? Well, it's, uh, it's at least an ergonomic keyboard, which is uh, another way of saying that it's split in the middle and angled. That's the only kind of keyboard I'm able to type on now. Put a straight keyboard in front of me and all I do is type the wrong keys. The bent keyboard I use is a Microsoft QWERTY keyboard. As I said, I tried the Dvorak system once, couple or twice, never could quite get the hang of it. I suspect that the same thing would happen if I tried this new standard keyboard. 
No matter how much sense it would make, my fingers still have more than 40 years of experience in dealing with QWERTY. According to the standard keyboard website, Even if you are already a competent touch typist, there is room to significantly increase your speed, comfort, and accuracy by making the switch to the new standard keyboard. After all, the QWERTY key layout was designed around a machine. It demands poor posture and difficult movements known to cause stress injuries in normal humans. And it has a letter arrangement that creates many awkward finger sequences that slow down the typist and cause errors. In contrast, the new standard key layout was designed around human hands. It's ergonomically correct to allow proper posture and easy movements, and it has a letter arrangement that maximizes fast finger sequences and minimizes awkward ones. The benefits are clear. Okay, well, maybe. If you want to take a look at it, there's a picture on the Technology Corner website. Do follow the link, however, to the standard keyboard website. The keyboard that I used on the Technology Corner website looks rather like a cartoon keyboard. They do have one that looks more like a real keyboard. If I were a betting person, which I am not, I think I would not bet on this. But I'll bet that I would like to hear from you. Let me know where in the world you are, what you think of the format, what you think of the program. The address, bill.blinn, B-I-L-L dot blinn, B-L-I-N-N, at techbiter, T-E-C-H-B-Y-T-E-R dot com. Thanks for listening. This has been Technology Corner for the week of December 10th, 2006. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. You can also send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.